0: Those are verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34, which is the passage we're going to be looking at for the next couple of weeks on faith-seeking understanding. I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. Yesterday, we looked at sort of the revelation that had been given to um, the Israelites in Egypt— Um, through the plagues, through God's concern for them, but that by sending Moses, sending the plagues, and delivering them from the Egyptians, and then the fear that they had when they got to Mount Sinai, because it seemed to be a continuation of uh, what had happened in the plagues. They, they, They had great fear at the revelation of God on the mountain because he came in power, and it's because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not an ending spot, but it's a beginning spot. We never should lose touch with that either, by the way. We should always have that in our minds, the the transcendence of God, the otherness of God, the holiness of God, the sanctity of God. And so that causes separation between God and sinful humanity. But he provided then, and more specifically now, for a way to heal that breach and that divide and bring us close to Him and allow Him to live in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what we're doing during this season is looking at the the, the attributes of God found in uh, the divine mercy, actually, found in that passage that I read at the beginning. And so we talked last time about God's revelation to the Israelites in Egypt. Now you're going to get the, one of the quickest reviews of God's revelation of those that same characteristic in the book of Genesis, because you're going to get it all here in one, like, 20-minute podcast, and I've already used two minutes of that, so here we go. So in the first two chapters of Genesis, what do we have? We have two accounts of creation, one from the general overview, and the second from the perspective primarily focusing on on the creation of mankind. And so humankind's perspective, then, then there's all these other things that get brought into the mix in that second chapter. I mean, I've heard it said that people said, well, it's bad editing. Really? You mean somebody didn't realize in the first two chapters that, well, these are two accounts of creation, um, and, and they seem to be slightly different from one another. So that's really bad editing. And then the same people will posit um, something called the documentary hypothesis that says that, that at least four different kinds of editors were involved in in working on the Torah, the first five books. Um, so the, the, and it's difficult to determine which uh, group was responsible for any particular part of it, but they were so they were so good that they, that they they're hard to detect their editing, but they but they're so bad that they didn't realize there were two different creation accounts in the first two chapters. So at any rate, what we see is the majesty of God, the greatness of God, and the goodness of God in creation. He speaks things come into being. That's frightening. That is frightening. It's comforting at the same time, but it's mostly frightening to think that anything God says becomes, and it becomes exactly the way he says it will be. And so and, and it's good. Everything that He created was good. So we know that if, if you create good, then you are good. A lot of other religions look at creation, look at the world that we live in, and come to the conclusion that, that a malign presence actually created it. And, and they see that and they believe that because, well, look at the stuff that happens in the world. You know, I lost a son a few months ago. Another friend of mine lost a son a few months ago. That, that shouldn't happen. I think everybody knows that. So, w- but what every other creation story does is the, it determines that it's the fault of the God or gods, because either the God's crazy or the gods are crazy, uh, or they wanted to get this mess out of their domain and put it down here. So th- there's a malign presence that creates these things, but, but what we see in, in Genesis 1 and 2 is, is the goodness of God, the goodness of God in creating a good creation. And then what we see is, is the goodness of God in, in the creation of humankind, in his image to be his representatives on the earth. And the goodness of God is, is seen first by Adam in, in observing everything around him. And then, then he's asked to name everything, and he does. And then the, it, he realized at the end of that, well, everything else has a mate, and I don't. And then God, in his goodness and in his mercy, gave him that mate. But he did it in such a way and at such a time that he, he would have maximum appreciation because he saw the lack. And the lack was, there's nothing like me. And it's lonely to be that way. And, and that's exactly what God said. It wasn't good. That's the first thing that's not good for a man to be alone. So God created the woman. Well, God knew that from the beginning. Adam needed to see that he needed to see god's goodness in a special way just for him and that's exactly what happened in chapter 3 that's the fall right so there there's the the they break the one commandment they were given not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil they do it at the behest of this serpent and so god curses the serpent that he'll crawl on his belly then which he obviously wasn't doing before and then He curses the woman in childbirth, and also that her desire is to to be for her husband, but he will lord over her. So he will be in charge. Your desire will be to be in charge of him, but that's not the way it's going to work. And then he cursed the ground and that the man would now have to work to get the ground to yield its increase. But the mercy of God is they didn't surely perish at that time. He didn't separate himself entirely from them. He separated them from the tree of life, but not from him and his presence. So he's in and fills all the earth. And so that's chapter 3 and chapter 4. There's a mercy, right? So Cain kills Abel. God warned him not to do this thing. And yet at the end of it, God allowed him, spared him his life. He made working the earth even harder and then cast him further away and condemned him to be a wanderer on the earth. He chose not to actually live into that, but God also gave him a mark of protection because Cain said, anybody who sees me will kill me. And so God gave him a mark of protection. So there's a mercy even for the murderer there. And then we move forward through some genealogy stuff, and then we get into the flood. And what we're told there is is that the only intentions of man's heart was only evil all the time, and that the Nephilim, the, the sons of God, had seen that the daughters of men were attractive, and so they came down and intermarried with human beings. And it's at that point that God brings this worldwide flood, but there's a mercy in that because Noah and his family survive it, as do two pairs, or a breeding pair, of every kind of clean animal and seven of every kind of unclean animal. So you get this... The, the mercy of God is, I'm not going to destroy everything and start completely de novo. Nope, we're going to start with some remnant of this. And then in chapter 9, he gives um, the covenant with all the earth, the covenant that he'll no, never again destroy the earth by a flood in that way. And then we get a little more genealogy in 10, and then in 11, we get the Tower of Babel. And so what's happened is these people who were supposed to multiply and spread across the face of the earth decided we don't want to do that. We lose our power. We have power if we come together to work towards a common goal. And so the common goal they chose was we're going to build a city here in the plain of Shinar in Mesopotamia, and then, then we're going to build a tower, a ziggurat, the, that reaches up into the sky so that we'll make a name for ourselves not only on the earth but in the heavens. And God heard of this, and then what it says is God had to come down to see it. So as high as you might have built that thing, it's not making a name in the heavens where God dwells. You're just—this is vanity, nothing more. God has to come down to see what's going on, then divides them according to language. Again, could have judged them, could have ended everything right there, but didn't do it. There's a mercy in that, that they're now spread across the face of the earth, which is exactly what they didn't want to do, but they're doing it in order to fulfill God's mandate to be able to do that. So he, he allows them unwillingly and unwittingly to fulfill his mandate to spread and, and increase and fill the earth. And then in chapter 12, he calls one man, Abraham. We don't know why he called Abraham. We just know that God's inscrutable wisdom calls this man, and this man becomes a man of faith, and he makes him a promise. Go, leave your father's land, and go to the place that I'm going to show you. I'll make your name great. Every nation on earth that blesses you, I will bless. If they curse you, I will curse them, and I will, I will give you progeny, countless progeny. And so Abraham says, well, I'm no fool. I think God made a promise. I think I'm going to count on that, and I'm going to go forth. And he does, and he begins to proclaim the name of the Lord. And so God does. He increases him mightily, blesses him with prosperity beyond belief, but he but he doesn't give him the child for 25 years. And then finally he does. So along the way, um, Abraham has to walk with God in order to, to kind of live into the promise that God made him there. Well, he messes up a few times along the way. Once when there's a famine, they go to Egypt. Another time they go to a place called Gerar when there's a famine. And in both places, what happens is Abraham says to Sarah, his wife, says, hey, tell everybody here that you're my sister. There's truth in that, but it's only a part of the truth because she's also his wife. And so he's afraid, though, that she's so beautiful that they'll kill him to have her if they think that he's her husband. And so in both cases, he's, he's just dead wrong. But God protects Sarah from uh, consummating any marriage with anyone else during this period of time. And so even though Abraham is not trusting God clearly in these instances because he didn't think God could protect him, so they had to concoct some sort of a lie— that God did protect him and Sarah during this period of time, and then he listens to and obeys the voice of his wife in the matter of her maid, because Sarah is frustrated because she hasn't conceived, and God said they would. And so she says, here, sleep with my maid and get me a child that way. And so she obviously believes that she's the problem, that God hasn't opened her womb. And so, well, what does God do? I mean, he, he gives Hagar the ability to conceive. So we've got proof now that Abraham's perfectly fine as far as being able to deliver the goods. So there's a mercy in that, but then there's a problem immediately. And so God's merciful then to Hagar when her mistress, Sarah, mistreats her and she goes away. God, God meets her there and promises her things about her offspring as well, that there'll, be, that there'll be many nations coming from him as well. And then it continues on, and ultimately he has to send away Hagar and Ishmael, his son, who he clearly loved, had to send him away uh, because there was going to be a problem otherwise apparently. And so then what happens is, is that, that Isaac is born, there's a God's mercy Obviously, God's mercy is in that. Now I've missed a little bit here. I missed the the uh, Sodom and Gomorrah scene, and, and there's a mercy there because God had said in the deal that he was, that Abraham tried to make with him that if there are ten righteous men there, I won't destroy the place. That's a mercy because he had intended to to do to destroy it, and then he pleaded Abraham did, and what Abraham didn't know was what God did know, which was, well, there's not ten <laughs> and, and lot is compromised. And we know that he's compromised because what we see is, is that that once it's told to him that Sodom is going to be destroyed, what does he do? He goes to his uh, prospective son-in-laws and tells them both what's going to happen. They thought he was joking. And then when the angels say, up, come on, let's go, he, he hesitated. Lot hesitated. What in the world is wrong with you? So he wasn't even fully convinced, it seems. He, he wasn't even fully convinced that, that Sodom was a horrible place. He didn't want to leave it even though it was going to be destroyed. And then he begs, oh, hey, how about this? How about give me some mercy that you've already given me in, in getting me out of here because I'm clearly not particularly a righteous man. Now, and now he begs him to say, hey, don't send me into the hills. Let me go into this town over here to zone. And then he goes to zone and he realizes, hey, I'm not, I'm not really popular here. I'm afraid for my life. And so he goes to the hills on his own. And then he and his daughters, well, they get him drunk and have sex with him and have children. So, But there's a mercy that, that these people's lives are even saved, because there's no reason for their lives to have been saved in that, except for uh, a mercy towards Abraham, because of Abraham's faithfulness, out because of lots. So then we move on, and we have the child, and then God says, take him. Take the child, the the son, your only son, the one you love, and take him up onto the mountain I'm going to show you and sacrifice him to me there. And so Abraham says, okay, I'll do that, because it was not uncommon In those times. We have found mass graves where children have been sacrificed uh, in in ritual ways, which means that they're worshiping their gods. And so Abraham, well, I I don't know. God said, do it. So here we go. I don't know very much about him, but here we go. And so he goes up to do that, and then God stops him in the middle of it and says, don't touch him. And God provided the sacrifice. He provided the ram. He provided the mercy necessary. And then Isaac grows up, and, and, and God mercifully provides for him. He provides a wife, and then he provides abundantly for him in prosperity, and then they have two children, and then God has a plan. The younger is going to be the one who's going to be in charge here. that promise is going to come through him. God gave the covenant promises that he had given to Abraham to his son Isaac as well, and then Isaac tries to circumvent that because now everybody's going to be involved in deception because Jacob and Esau are the two children, and Jacob's name means deceiver. So he's going to deceive, he and his mother are going to weave deception because, well, it's a family trait, (laughs) And um, and then ultimately they're going to deceive the father. They're going to deceive Isaac, who is ready to step outside of God's will and bless his older son in spite of the fact that he's supposed to bless the younger son, but he enjoyed his tasty game is what we're told, so he loved him for that reason. That's literally why it says he loved him. So he he asked him to bring the tasty game, and they deceive him. And so then there's a mercy in sending Jacob away. And Jacob goes away, the, the supreme deceiver. He's won. He's gotten birthright and blessing, but, but now he can't live at home. He's in exile. And so he goes to his uncle, Laban his mother's brother, and he finds a wife there. But, well, Laban's not—he's a bigger trickster. He's a better deceiver than Jacob is. And so he suckers him into marrying his oldest daughter first, even though he didn't. They went through the ceremony, and then they switched. And he consummated the marriage with the sister, not the one who he wanted to marry. So he had to work seven years for her, then seven years for the younger sister, and then another seven years. He's, he's 20 years into this thing, and, and hes but he's, God's prospered him. Mightily. And he's had tons of children. So he's got at least 13 kids, 12 boys, and at least one daughter, Dinah, by, by Rachel and Leah and their maids. So God's really prospered him. And he comes back and, well, he, his brother's coming and he thinks he's going to kill him. And so God gave him a new name because he wrestled with him there at the ford of the Jabbok River. And he gave him a new name, and he called him Israel because you've struggled with God. That's Israel. El is God. So Isra is then the struggle. And he wrestled with the angel, and so therefore he had struggled with God and survived. And so now he has a new name and a new destiny, and he's made these promises to God, and God's made promises to him. He made the same covenant promises that he made with his father and his grandfather. And then he comes in, and then, well, his kids deceive him and tell him, well, we don't know what happened to this one. We assume that he was killed by a wild animal, and his name is Joseph, by the way, and Joseph is not the youngest. His brother Benjamin's the youngest. But but then what happens, right? So they sell him into slavery, into Egypt. So it begins in slavery, and then we see him in slavery again, the people in slavery again in Exodus. So it begins with Joseph, the one Hebrew, in slavery in in Egypt, but then because of God's mercy, God raises him up makes him the number two man in the kingdom, puts him there in that place so that when the famine time comes and his family needs food, they come and they meet a man who, well, deceives them a few times and, and messes around with them for quite a bit, a little bit maliciously. Um, they finally, but he is providing for them extravagantly every time they come. He's testing them, but he's also providing extravagantly for them out of the king's reserves He's not even taking their money. He's just sending them home with food and the money. So all this comes down to, finally, Joseph, at the end, when he reveals himself to his brothers, he says, "He says what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So in spite of the fact that, that, I, that it, there was long periods of time when I couldn't see how good could have come out of any of this, because he was down in Egypt a long time. He was there 20 years before they came down, because he was 17 when he got there. And so they didn't recognize him. Well, there's a mercy that God put him down there. That they had a plan, but they were they were they had a, a plan that was wrong, but God's plan was to have him there in that place at that time to preserve the family. And so we see God's mercy again and again and again to people who are not worthy of that mercy. These people are sinful people. I mean, Isaac even you know, Isaac is trying to deceive God essentially by trying to bless the older son Esau, but even before that, he and uh, Rebecca actually were down in Gerar, where Abimelech was, where his father had gone and tried to deceive him by telling him, "This is this is my sister." He did the same thing. I mean, that, that, it's a lack of faith. And so, what happens is God's continually merciful. Because when it says that Lot was righteous in his day, that's comparative. That's not saying Lot was a, or not Lot. Sorry, Noah was a righteous man in his day. It's not saying that he was a righteous man. It says compared to all the other scum on the earth he was a righteous man and so god started all over with him but we know that his family wasn't particularly righteous because we know that his son sinned against him almost immediately and brought curse on himself and his family so we see god's mercy again and again but we don't know the extent of god's mercy and that's the reason this passage in uh, exodus 34 is so important is so important for the people of god And it's so important for us to realize, yes, he is a God of justice. He is a God who who is to be feared and who is to be worshipped. But at the same time, he's a God characterized by mercy in the way that he deals with his people. It's not a feeling God has. It's who he is. It's what he does. It's how we can recognize that, that he is a good God. And, and when we pray in the Anglican world, when we pray for the prayer of confession in service, we begin with most merciful Father. And there's a reason for that. Because that enables us to come with confidence to confess our, our sins to him before the throne, knowing that he's merciful and that it's his desire and his way to forgive those who confess their sins. And that's the reason that that passage also says, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Guilty means... You're not willing to confess it even as sin. You're willing to hang on to it and continue to do it because you believe that it's good when God has said that it's not. So we see mercy again and again and again, but now here we need a direct revelation. We need to know, they need to know, that this God is not only a God to be feared. He is a God we can also live with, so long as we're willing to confess our sins before him and make the proper sacrifices, in this case, now we come covered in the blood of Jesus, the one sacrifice of himself once offered on that cross for all mankind and for the sins of all mankind. So we know that no matter what we've done, we can come before the throne knowing that Jesus is the perfect and acceptable sacrifice for our sins. And so we can count on him, rely on him. We need not fear confessing our sins and agreeing with God. It should be our delight to do that, to say we have fallen short of the glory of God, it should be our delight to say, Lord, I agree with you on what sin is, and I recognize that if I continue in this pattern, then life's not going to go as well for me as it ought to go, and so I want to confess and turn away from that. I I want to agree with you. I want to live a life that's pleasing to you because I am so pleased and delighted in the sacrificial offering of your Son on my behalf for my sin that I might have eternal life and have the Holy Spirit now.